Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. Never go home. They never go home. They never go home. Those, those, those boys. That's... Yeah... <laughs> They have asked for that, really. Uh, you can laugh. I have to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. But you don't know what you're talking about. What did you know? I'd like to stay alive for six days. I'd say it to your face, not say it to now. I'm down to Anfield and we'll see them all. What you doing down here, you shiny man? <laughs> You're very welcome to the Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast on what is a sad, sad day for the Premier League. Okay, so its chief executive, Richard Scudamore, was looking fairly smug as he announced the news that Sky Sports and BT would, between them, cough up more than £5 billion for three years' worth of football matches at a cost of roughly £10 per game. But just hours later, the smile was surely wiped off Scudamore's face when the news came through that the Premier League had lost its oldest and most valuable asset. I speak, of course, Ken, of the Scottish manager. Yes, for the first time in its history, the greatest league in the world has no Scotsman in charge of any of its teams. Really? After the sacking of... According to uh, a tweet I saw from Eurosport earlier again, after the sacking of Paul <laughs> Lambert at Aston Villa, so the glory days of Ferguson, Moyes and Billy Davies are no more, I'm afraid. Kennedy and Kerr Murphy are here. And lads, the question today is, can the Premier League survive without... The jocks. <laughs> that is true. Mm. It's a tough, well, I mean, tough one it, to call. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems like it's an amazing feat of journalism to figure out, you know, that it is actually the first time there's never been a Scottish manager. But then you realise Alex Ferguson was manager for... So basically all we need to find out is, was there a Scottish manager last year? Uh, oh, yes. yeah, there was. No, there, well, it was Moyes Moy, last, last year. Quite recently, there was there was quite a lot of Scottish managers. I mean, you had a situation where there, there was obviously Moyes, Fergie. Uh, you had... Um, Ricky Sprague. Steve Clark, Kenny Dalglish, mm. uh, Alex McLeish. Mm-hmm. Uh, you had obviously Lambert. When was the last time Gordon Strachan... Steve Keane. You had, Steve you had, Keane, you had yeah. big Steve You're not Keane. forgetting Paul Sturrock at Southampton, I hope, Ken. Uh, Paul Sturrock. <laughs> Paul, Paul, Paul Sturrock. You laugh. But Paul Sturrock is, is according to uh, the soccernomics team of Simon Cooper and Stefan Szymanski, one of the handful of managers in the game who have proven to make a difference in terms of uh, his teams consistently finish a long way above where you think they would when you look at the money that he's got to spend. Not many managers can say that. Mm. So while you may be giggling at the at no, the name giggling. Paul Sturrock, who by the way was a bloody good footballer as well, can I just say I'm I, just gonna say I think the man deserves a bit more respect. I'm not impugning Paul Sturrock. I'm just I was laughing at 
McDevitt's almost instant uh, recall of Paul's. I ha- I, no, I, I have been looking it up earlier. If there are some helpful lists of these things done up, and yeah. uh, I hope you're not going to denigrate Stuart Houston in that way or George no, I'd Graham. Never do, I'd never do that. George right. Graham's record in the game speaks for itself. Yeah. Um, and of course, there was Alan Irvine only. Uh, I mean, earlier this season. All of them dour. No. A lot of them are dour. Oh. Well, I mean, Lambert, Lambert's the, the dourest man in football. The, he's the. I mean, if, if Billy, Billy Davis, I mentioned, he was dour. If he's well, I would say Billy Davis was a, was a bit more. Yeah, I mean, more I, what about Ali McCoist? Now he's never ah, managed. He's, a he's never chappy. managed in the Premier League, but is he dour? Is he the only Scotsman to captain a team on question of sport? Uh, I mean, that's the anti-dour. Yeah, you know, I mean, Ali McCoy's isn't there. That yeah. is true. No, but I mean, if if we are to say maybe the dare ones are are, are preferable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nobody wants a cheeky chappy Scotsman in charge <laughs> of their Premier League team. But I mean, Impulsive. if if we are to say that this is the last, this is the the final, the terminal death yeah. of the Scotsman the in the Premier League, right? <laughs> surely. Surely Paul Labert is a fitting <laughs> full stop to the entire last Scottish football manager. I don't. Uh, no, I don't. I don't think so. I think. I think the Scots. The Scots will be back. Will be back. Um, Lambert. Whew, I don't know. I mean, the way. God, things, he was dour though, Ken. It didn't go dour, well. dour, dour. And, and the thing is that he actually had, had sort of. Um, he'd done a lot of the things that maybe fans kind of want to see the manager doing. I mean, he managed to sign at least one good. Uh, I mean, Benteke was Benteke snapped his Achilles tendon. How different could things? have been for Paul Lambert if that hadn't happened at such an inopportune moment. Um, but, you know, it, the team was full of kind of young players and players who he who he'd, he found uh, scouring the lower leagues. Uh, you know, it was it, there were signs of kind of a he, good, that, that the principles behind what he was doing were good. He's, a good. he's a good football man, good Scottish football man. It just didn't work. He was like a kind of Dr. Frankenstein who had stitched together this this creature on a you know a slab or altar and it looked great but it just wouldn't come alive Frankenstein looked great did he the, well no this <laughs> the, the Frankenstein was the name of the scientist not not the well known Lothario the not, creature from Frankenstein uh, <laughs> but this 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 creature like actually looked well I mean it, it, it stitched it together well from the from the outside it looked good the problem was it was just dead as a doornail Nothing could bring this thing to life. And he tried everything. Uh, Now, Lambert has released a statement now through the LMA. And he says, I pay tribute to the supporters who are among the most passionate I've ever encountered. These are the supporters who've been demanding his head for the last three or four months. Passionately, yep. Uh, they rightly hold huge expectations for their beloved football club. And I sincerely hope they are rewarded the success they deserve. I can really understand their frustrations. I always shared their view that the football club is too big not to be competing at the top end of the table. I hope that can happen. You never stop learning in football management. And he says, you know, he's learned. He, he's a better manager for his time at Villa. I mean, Paul Lambert, after Norwich, I mean, he, he got Norwich, I think, two successive promotions or two promotions in short order. was, con- and, and then they played quite well in the Premier League. Uh, and people thought, well, he's a, he's the coming man in management. Uh, and that Scottish was Scottish too. That always works. That was where he was before he went to Aston Villa. Mm. I mean, Aston Villa is a bit of a graveyard for managers. You know, a lot of people go to Aston Villa thinking, you know, this is a, this is a, this is a big club. This is a great club. One of the a old slumbering giant. Yeah, and <laughs> turns out Frankenstein's monster isn't slumbering. He's dead. He's dead. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Um, 
I mean, in the case, you can try and you know put a big steeple up on top of your your, your chapel and <laughs> get a lightning bolt in, but you just end up with a lot of singed, burning flesh. Yeah, you but know, you got to move on. Start again. You got to move on. Don't worry. The Scottish manager may be dead as a concept, but mm. he's been replaced by an, an even greater being, Ken, and that is the Northern Irish Premier League manager. Okay. Uh, John Joe, your morning. Okay, let's go. John Joe Shelby, the king of the golf, the king of the golf course. Yeah. So we're going to be all right. Well, look. I suppose Brendan Rogers, a bit like Sarah Palin in Russia, you can you can see Scotland from his house. <laughs> well, I'm not sure if that's strictly true, but you know it's it's not too far away. Well, I, mean, gonna, I just yeah. I just want to mention what Lambert actually says. I mean, because after paying tribute to the fans and saying that he's a better manager, he also um, explains a little bit what happened here. He says, my initial remit was to conduct a massive overhaul of the playing squad, lower the overall wage structure of the playing staff, and achieve this whilst keeping the club in the Barclays Premier League. There was also a concerted effort to purchase and develop younger players who provide a solid footing for the football club to move forward and enhance the value of the playing squad in the future. When I came on board, the club's owner, Randy Lerner, warned me that I was embarking on the toughest challenge of my working life. And he wasn't wrong. But I've never stepped away from hard work, and I put my heart and soul into the job from my first day until my last. Now, I don't know if any, if any prospective Premier League or current Premier League managers are listening to this, but any, or anyone who might get a job as a manager in the future. I just want to say one thing. If, you go, if you're a, a sought-after in your field, and you go to uh, meet a prospective new employer who informs you that your, your job is going to be to preside over a period of grinding deflation in the, in the team that he wants you to oversee. You're going to cut the, cut every, you're going to do more with less. Just don't take the job. Just do not take that job. It's a bad job. Right. What, what, what Randy Lerner, or not Randy Lerner, Paul Lambert was thinking, leaving Norwich for this situation, I really don't know. You're going to have to cut, you're going to have to cut the wages, you're going to have to downsize everything, overhaul everything and, and try and do it all with young players who can't do it. Uh, he shouldn't have taken the job if that was what was an offer, but it appears that he did, that's what he's saying now and, uh, and the results, who can be surprised? We're going to talk to Nick Harris of SportingIntelligence.com today about the TV rights deal, John Bruin on Louis van Hal's Rafa Benitez moment and you've enjoyed the Irish Times Second Captain's podcast. I'm hoping you do if you're listening to this. You might want to know about the Irish Times Second Captain's Sports Night with Rabo Direct. It's a show we're recording in front of a live audience at the Sugar Club in Dublin on Monday week. That's February 23rd at 7pm. If you want to be part of the audience, just check out irishtimes.com forward slash second captains for details. Tickets are pretty expensive, Murph. Uh, oh, yeah, I've checked the price here. And if you just see, add the, add the notes. It is free. It's, <laughs> a, it's free. a zero cent, zero euro uh, admission fee. Apply for free tickets, irishtimes.com forward slash second captains. It's the week of the Ireland-England Six Nations game, so we'll have some great guests there, some food, drink, hardcore, hashtag sports chat, all of that kind of stuff. We'd love to see you there. It's time now for Kennedy's report on sport. Um, I mean, just to finish off on Lambert, because it's been... I mean, they, they have been really awful. You know, and they've scored 12 goals, which is stunningly low total, record low total after 25 games in uh, the Premier League. Um, and the, just looking at the Birmingham Mail, you know, Birmingham Mail has been campaigning for Lambert to go since for the last couple of days. The, maybe they tip the balance. Certainly, uh, <laughs> I imagine... Newspapers always like to feel that they, you know, it was the Sun what won it. Uh, it was the Birmingham Mail what eventually uh, persuaded. Well, when you hear of a manager being under pressure, uh, now I could be wrong on this, but I, I get the feeling that usually if there's a bit of pressure nationally, and I say nationally, say in the UK, 
that then locally that pressure is probably magnified. It's I, I would imagine it's rare enough that you hear of a guy in a club struggling and, and people calling for his head around the country. Mm. And then you go and you see the local newspapers are actually saying, "No, this guy's doing an amazing job. He should stay." Well, wrong? I've got no empirical evidence here. No, I'd no say that's I'd say that's generally true. I wouldn't say it's always true. I mean, sometimes I think the local press can be against the guy, uh, and the national. My feeling press. is that they'd be too familiar with this. They're the people. They're the guys that go along against. They're the ones who have to watch this terrible football week in week yeah, out. So yeah. unless there's some amazing personality behind the manager that you don't see around the country or around the world. One example I can think of is, say, Harry Redknapp uh, frequently gets along better with the national press than with his local press, whoever Mm -hmm. they may be. Mick McCarthy uh, has frequently had situations with the local press screaming (laughs) for his blood, you know, and the national press thing. But he's such a decent man. Uh, Roy Hodgson, I remember when he was at Liverpool, everyone, the national press were saying... What lovely Roy! This man needs time. Look at the look at what these animals are doing to Roy. Um, Rafael Benitez, maybe the other way around at that same club. I think the national media is saying this guy Benitez doesn't understand what English football is all about. Look at him waving that piece of paper around. More of that later. Um, <laughs> so, like a lot of, lot of arguments, again, it can go both ways. It can go both ways. The Birmingham Mail. I love this. Aston Villa is a proud and noble name in English football. Proud and noble. It is an historic club. I like the way when when you write "an historic," it shows that your your tone is meant to be very serious. When you say "an historic club," you wouldn't say "a historic club" like you might. Well, actually, in fairness, only an Irish person would an, would an English person an English person would always say "an historic." Is "an historic" not just the correct way to say? It? Yeah, it depends. I mean, uh, they don't really say "h" the same way as we do, do they? "H" is an "or" is different. Like an English person trying to say the name "fahi." You know what I mean? Not easy. By the way, or if you are thinking, Doherty. if you are thinking coming along to that Gallagher, if you're coming along to that thing, coming along to that show in the Sugar Club, Ken will do live grammar lessons <laughs> for you for it, possibly an hour to an hour and a half. He's got a number of slides as well. So <laughs> hold on to your britches, folks. It is an historic club at the heart of a community, a founding father of the beautiful game. But this great club <laughs> is now on its knees. The founding father is on its knees. Uh, and the and the whole day on his knees probably should be and the whole end is hurting and we can no longer stand by and watch that happen <laughs> <laughs> we've stood by long enough with uh, the father on his knees do you think this is a little over but you shut up <laughs> you shut up uh, Aston Villa is hurting uh, today the Birmingham Mail makes one simple stark request to the Aston Villa board sack the manager. <laughs> Hang the Kaiser, sack the manager. We've got to pick ourselves up now. I've absolutely got no doubt about that, said Paul Lambert moments before he was <laughs> moments before he was sacked. Uh, no sympathy for Lambert. I mean, I was watching last night on BT Sport, right? It went straight from Chelsea match to Fletch and Sav. Oh. Right? And it goes, and Fletch and Sav. And Fletch and Sav. That's a, and that's, a, that's a cultural phenomenon, that is. Sav is like... Yeah, he, of course he deserves to be sacked. <laughs> you can't, like, have you got absolutely no sympathy whatsoever? Hold on, people are looking for direct punditry. People, everyone's too busy Sav. talking around the subject. Come was, on. was it Sav or Fletch who said it that? It was Sav. It was Sav. I don't know if Fletch expresses... Fletch is more the... Uh, Fletch applies to journalism. Fletch is more of a professional <laughs> presenter. The silver yin to his raging yak. The, Sa- the Sav is a loose is, cannon. Is, is Robbie Savage in case... A lot, I'm sure a lot of people haven't seen Fletch and Sav on B- BT Sport. Sav is a loose cannon and he's pointed facing straight down the camera. He almost 
almost as though he was like just peering straight into the camera, into your into your face as you sit in your living room watching him. Um, but yeah, he was yeah, Zach, Zach Lambert. You know this. I just thought this is this is harsh. Like this is the first time managers have actually been subjected to this type of thing. Like moments after moments after losing the match, they're. You know, this, this TV is probably showing in the press room. You know what I mean? I don't think much. Well, no. There's always been. There have always been phone-in shows on Sky Sports, for example. Yeah, after but games. I mean, it's just an extra layer of it. You know what I mean? And you've got like, yeah, like you've got Phil a bunch Neville, of former professional footballers there. It does make a difference. Loads of like Phil. Who's Phil Neville and who Skulls? else? McManaman and Owen Owen Yeah, Hargreaves, you know. Yeah, Michael he's Owen. he's probably got to go, hasn't he? You're thinking these guys. I mean, you see how Michael Owen reacts when someone suggests that he maybe he's had long enough in his job. You know what I mean? Maybe he hasn't really done particularly well as a co-commentator, and mm. maybe it's time for you know when when people express those kind of opinions on Twitter to him, he often gets a little bit, <laughs> a little bit angry. Or like I've seen Gary Lineker say, "A bit of respect, please, for for Michael Owen." You know, to people saying when they tweet to Michael Owen, going. God, you're so boring, or something along these lines. Lineker's in there defending, defending him, saying, "Oh, you know, come on, bit of respect." You know, they're talking about poor old Lambert. You know, I mean, he is probably going to get sacked, but come on. I thought, I thought it was a bit harsh. Um, you've, you've just, your eyes are glazed over, and you're, you're like, move on. Uh, I mean, you're, you, you, well, you, no, no, your, I... your expression reminds me a bit of what I imagine the Aston Villa players. Faces look like <laughs> when Paul Lambert told them, "I've told, I've told the players they've got thirteen cup finals." <laughs> I mean, imagine having to play thirteen cup finals in a row. Well, nightmare tickets wise for a start. Oh god! Straight away, you're worried about how you're going to sort people out for tickets. And how many songs reasonably can you sing in, <laughs> you know, just three short months? Recording spaces at a premium mm-hmm. in Birmingham, I'd imagine. Suppose if you recorded four or five at a go. Oh, yeah, decent rate. That's Lambert anyway, so hopefully we'll we'll see him back, or at least a, a member of his... I'm not, by the way, I, I, I don't want you to misinterpret my, my look, at, because, and I don't want you to feel that you're not to speak about Fletch and Sav in the future. Oh, yeah. I think we need to bring more Fletch and Sav into this podcast. Yeah. We need more of a Fletch and Sav kind of tone to this podcast. Really? I'll, 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 I'll be Fletch, you can be Sav. Mm-hmm. Murph, I don't know, who you're, you're, you're Owen Hargreaves. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take that. Uh, I think um, I think it really hopped into the public consciousness though because Fletcher had, yeah. had previously been on at like eleven a.m. on a Saturday morning before the, the midday yeah. program starts with their live game. Yeah. Whereas now it's immediately after the after the, the the game, you know. So I think this was their this was their coming of age moment. Breakout you know? moment yeah. This was their coming out party. Yeah, I, th- I can't help but feel that they've missed the they they missed the golden opportunity there. Where? From what I've seen, well, I watched like the first five minutes of the two shows. Yeah, and uh, yeah, it's a strange one. All right, those chairs that they're sitting on. I mean, like, there's a million things. Why is like, Robbie Savage staring straight down the camera? Why has he got his face well, jammed it's the straight in the it's, lens? It's the American style of broadcasting. It's the Butch Harmon approach. I just don't know if I want to if I want to turn on my TV and see a massive Robbie Savage face staring back at me. You know, I mean, I've no objection to being in the studio, but I'm just thinking, why? With this open posture, he's staring straight at me in this in He intimidates this you. Um, but look, there, it's not as though that was the only thing that was going on last night. Although, I think, I can't remember what, what Sav's opinion was on the on the Branislav Ivanovic outrage. Um, now, Jose Mourinho obviously didn't like this because, you know, he's had this thing lately of media uh, organizations trying to get his players banned for stuff. So like Diego Costa, for instance. Oh, you keep showing that. Diego Costa's been banned now because of uh, 
you know, this stamp is kept, keeps, it wasn't a stamp, anyway, it was totally 100% accidental. It keeps being shown on television, the FAA do something about it. Now the same thing with Ivanovic. People are saying to him, he actually said to the BBC before the game, oh, I'm happy with you because you don't try and get my players banned. Then after the game, yeah. Jonathan Pierce says to him, uh, what about, um, you know, if you see that one of your players has done something wrong in there, are you going to take action? And Marino literally said, I'm out, I'm out of here. Now that, that initial interview was actually from the weekend. It was from their last game. It was from after their last game, as far as I remember, where, where he said, I, I love you, BBC. You, you don't try to get me banned. Not that it makes a massive difference, but then suddenly he's, uh, the goodwill towards the BBC evaporated after one mm, tepid enough question. Yeah, he doesn't want to say anything about Ivanovic. This is a thing, whenever he has to comment on something that he doesn't like, that he doesn't want people talking about, he just he either nods or shakes his head or shrugs his shoulders or walks away. Mm. Um the last thing he wants is to give a Jose Mourinho quote referring to this in any, in any sense. Um, so I have to say, I don't think this Ivanovic, there's nothing in this Ivanovic thing. It was him and James McCarthy. There's a big kind of a, a tear up towards the end of the match. Ivanovic drags McCarthy away. He's got a, a brawny forearm around his neck at one point, And McCarthy's face is quite red and it almost looks as though he's choking him. And then he, he kind of... Looked as though maybe he headbutted him a little bit, but he didn't headbutt him. Come on, that's a, that's not a headbutt. It is by Premier League standards, though. Yeah, but Premier League standards are Fletch and Sav standards now, right? You've got a you've got a microscopic incident, a microscopic incident which no one is going to notice. Picked up by one of the twenty four HD cameras, magnified, slowed down, blown up, and subjected to Fletch and the punditry of Fletch and Sav. At the end of which, you've got a oh, he's got to be he's got to be suspended for that, or oh no, there's nothing in that. Now, I'm actually on the, there's nothing in that. Uh, but there's, there is nothing in that. Come on, you can't. All he was really doing was, was in effect, breaking up a confrontation. You, you've, seen, you've seen them given, Ken. You've seen red cards given for that, though. Uh, they shouldn't be, though. Uh, yeah, yeah. I would argue probably not, because there's nothing that's going to do. It's the same argument, though, behind, you should, oh, if you raise your hand, you're in trouble. And I never quite understand you're that. Give, you're giving the referee yeah, a chance. I, I never quite understand that, yeah. uh, because uh, oftentimes a leg-breaking tackle is you're not raising your hand in a leg-breaking tackle, but you can be sneakier about it and you can be a lot more violent with a bad tackle and possibly get away with it. Yeah. Whereas you raise your hand to push somebody away in the face or whatever and you're sent off. So going by that slightly warped Premier League code, I would say that probably probably was a red card. Well, I'd say in the, in the, the, the problem with raising your hand is that a referee can always see you raising your hand. Yeah. Whereas if is you that go- what that phrase means? Is it, well, referees are... They're going to miss a lot of things, but that's the one thing they can't miss. I think I think the phrase actually means, "Oh, if you raise if you raise your hand, you are committing a red card offence." I think that's what it means. But in practice, what it, what it, what it, what it boils down to is that referees do send players off for that because they see the hand go up and then they're like, "What happened? I didn't quite catch what happened, but I did see him raise his hand. I think I'm going to send this man off." So former footballers would probably think you're being quite stupid by raising your hand because. You're making it obvious. Yeah. You're not being sneaky enough with your... Whereas an over-the-ball leg breaker, okay, sometimes you're going to get sent off for it. Sometimes you won't. And if you've, if you've done it right, uh, the, ball was the, there, referee will, the referee will have missed it. The referee was like, well, that tackle looked a bit rough. Ooh. Oh, I don't like it. Oh, God. You know, and, and then if the, if the injury is really bad, he might send you off anyway. You know what I mean? But but a lot of it is about what the referee can see. And in, in the case of what Ivanovic did... TV rights, I'm going to ask Nick Harris this same question again. Why have Sky Sports spent, uh, is it over five billion, what, what the total is five billion, whatever, so it would be over four billion pounds 
to show some games. Well, billion. Is it uh, confidence? Are they so confident about the future of uh, the Premier League? The the future of how we're going to watch uh, the Premier League? How particularly people in the UK, because this is domestic UK rights, people in the UK are going to watch Premier League football and the different ways in which they're going to pay to watch it. Are they that confident about it that they can um, continue to make so much more money out of it? Or are they so desperate not to lose it that they've paid this money anyway and now are thinking, ooh, well, you know, it looks as though we've secured the future of our business. However, uh, our business may now no longer be workable. Well, well their, share price, their share prices immediately fell reasonably significantly, mm. which was interesting. Yeah, I mean, people are looking at this thinking, well, maybe you have overpaid. And look, it's happened before. ITV Digital, they tried this. They, they overpaid. They went bust. Satanta overpaid. And they the UK, uh, collapsed yeah. in the UK. Um, so it's not as though this hasn't happened. It's happened quite a lot, actually. I mean, it's happened, it's, uh, happened in Germany catastrophically for them, the Kirsch Media Group. Um it's something which does TV companies occasionally get carried away. I mean, I remember Owen, yourself and myself went to, uh, uh, during the Dublin the Web Summit back in November, yeah. went to see a, a, a talk on TV rights in which all the speakers, well, there was three speakers on stage, and I'd say two and a half of them were bullishly optimistic about, essentially were saying, look, TV sports rights cannot lose value. <laughs> you know, it was literally, they cannot yeah. Can't lose money. I'd automatically go into my my shoulders kind of tensed up just listening to that sentence. When I say two and a half, I mean um, one of the people on stage was the uh, Irish chief executive of BT Sports Ireland, who was saying, "Well, you know, in fairness, I am Irish and I have seen uh, things go uh, tits up in the past. However, uh, this being, you know, I don't see any signs that this is a bubble right now. You know, however, I accept bubbles do." In fact, occur often when you don't really think they're happening, yeah. but the, nevertheless, so, so they happen. I mean, I find it, I, I'm not surprised that it's a huge figure, actually, because Sky were worried that B in sports, the, the Qatari sort of the Richard Keyes fronted thing, were going to come and take away, drink their milkshake. And they, so that, because the way, the way this auction is done, no one knows what anyone else is bidding. So you just got to bid as much as you think you can. You know, you've got to bid what you think will we'll get it, but at the same time, you know, you're you're risking, you know, losing it out to the other person. So it's not an auction. No. So you just name your you write your f- figure on the. It's based on fear. They they use the broad the the each the more they have in the market, the better it is for yeah. the Premier League, obviously, because then each each. Um, Say bitter. It's like, oh yeah. no, you know. What That's are these, amazing. These you, being sports guys, like, yeah. what are they going to bid? You know, we need to, you know, we need to blow them out of the water. Well, yeah. we talked about game theory. Uh, on a podcast only a couple of days ago, and that, oh, yeah. that's 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 really game theory crystallized. There. Oh yeah, yeah when, you, uh, when you've no idea what the how, what's the best decision to make when you've no idea what the Just, other people because you would think the auction would be the way to get the most money. You know, you play one off the other, but actually, it's much more effective to play every company off the massive fear that they have of not getting it. Yeah, I mean, I'd say they're. There. I'd say in in reality, they're reasonably well informed about how much 
each of the others are going to pay. Although, you know, there's a lot of, I'm sure, corporate espionage goes on. I mean, when you're talking about this type of money involved, yeah. it suddenly makes it really worthwhile you have to know what's going on in the other person's company. Your brother-in-law's nephew happened to be working at BT, I suppose, for, I don't know, a billion uh, pounds. He could make a call. You're going to hear these. But, you know, there's a couple of things have, have resulted from this. I mean, number one is this is this debate over what? I mean, obviously, obviously there's the debate over what it means to TV companies. I think more more interesting is probably what it means for the Premier League, um, which is, in a sense, a, a, a rehash of, of the same debate that happened, you know, three years ago when the last deal was announced, which also seemed enormous and mm-hmm. 70% up on the, on the previous one. Um, and so you've got things like, well, the Premier League clubs need to start, for instance, paying a living wage to everyone who works for them, not just a minimum wage, a living wage to every every employee, you know. Um, Richard Scudamore saying things like, well, look, it's not our job to do that. Richard Scudamore is just, you know, he, he doesn't make any effort to dress things up. The What the clubs hide behind there is the fact that a lot of the people working for them aren't working for them as such. They're working on a, co- a contracting basis. So yeah. they'll contract out, say, the catering or whatever it might be. And they'll say, listen, we're getting a certain fee for that. It's up to the catering company to make sure that they're paid minimum wage. Uh, this is an argument that has actually been um, explored quite a lot in the US in the last year or so. There are a lot of cases being taken by cheerleaders who get paid a lot of them below the minimum wage, which I was staggered by, given that they're a pretty big part of the entertainment of the show. But it's a similar issue. A lot of them are employed on a, uh, on a contracting basis and uh, have pretty poor conditions and uh, terrible terrible pay. So it's, it's a similar kind of a thing in the Premier League. Uh, technically speaking, the clubs can say, well, we, we pay our staff minimum wage, yeah, uh, and then we contract out the other work. Yeah, the, the living wage is what it should be, but you know, they're, they're, what Scudamore is saying is, look, I'll take my lead from the government. We'll take our lead from the government. Uh, if, you're, if you're looking for social engineering... That's not our responsibility. Not actually our responsibility. If the government wants to decide that you know people need to be paid a certain amount, fine. Till then, I don't have a problem with our clubs doing what's legal. Um, so, yeah, that's fine. That's fine. You know, I mean, you can't really argue. Uh, you can't really argue with them uh, on that ground. But in terms of what the Premier League should do with this money, I suppose uh, the best thing to to how do you illustrate it? What happens when you? When you dump a bunch of slurry into a lake, Murph's the Murph's the man. I'll, I'll take this one on. Uh, <laughs> slurry lake. The lake I'm becomes. For, I'm a city the, slicker. Yeah, the lake becomes uh, polluted. Oh, uh, Ken. And what happens then? Uh, someone comes along to try and clear the slurry from the lake, perhaps unsuccessfully. Uh, the slurry is transported down the rivers, streaming out of those lakes. Yeah. And before you know it, the pollution is is everywhere. gone. No, oh, it's, it's everywhere. everywhere. It's everywhere. <laughs> well, the, the, in the lake specifically, when you dump a bunch of slurry in there, uh, there's something in the lake that really likes that. What is it? Uh, algae. Correct, Owen. Simon uh, G chatted me with that. And that algae loves... <laughs> I just it. felt too bad. I just couldn't take the credit <laughs> for that. Loves the slurry. It's like, you know, little green organisms, you know... How many cells they've got? Who cares? The fish don't like it though. No, this, we're not talking about the fish. You know, the fish can, um, the you know, it's sink or swim really very much in this slurry polluted lake. So the algae start eating up this the slurry, and suddenly the lake is completely covered in this what you call an algal bloom, Owen, uh, which is great. The you know, essentially the lake is just an extension of the grass. It's as green as greener than the grass, in fact, and then. 
Uh, what happens? Simon? Oxygen. <laughs> si- Simon says oxygen. Oxygen. That's all. I don't have any more info. Essentially, the, the, the now algae covered lake has completely destroyed the basis for its own existence. It's consumed all the other resources that it needs to exist, and then it all dies. Right, so you got a, you got an ecological catastrophe because mm. of the imbalance in the ecosystem. Now, maybe it's a stretch to compare this to what what's happening with the Premier League, but I'm not I'm not convinced that it is. I think if okay, uh, for for instance, there's a headline on uh, there's a headline on David Kahn's piece today. David Kahn, obviously a uh, Guardian journalist who uh, covers quite a lot of these financial issues in football. And he says Premier League can't be relied on to alter inequality that defines our age, and that's true. You know, it's not it's not Scudamore's responsibility. You know, he's living in Cameron's England, you know, and if it says that you know, the rich get richer and they don't need to share, that's that's fine. But the problem is that the inequality uh, that defines our age, uh, or, I mean, the age that we're living in, uh, is defined not only by inequality, it's defined also by what, say, what happened in this country, what happened in Spain, what happened in Greece. And in all of these countries, the same thing happened. And a vast amount of money essentially flowed into the country and when you've got more money than you know what to do with what do you end up doing with the money stupid 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 things <laughs> just stupid things you're trying to think of stuff to do with the money and it's difficult so you just end up wasting it you just end up blowing it that's what happens in every single situation where you've got more money coming in than the, than can so, okay you're moving off the point here you're gone back to football what happens to the algae well eventually everything in the lake dies what know? happens to what happens to humans we can still, we can just go to the ocean and get some, yeah. some decent food out of there. Did you do with an oxbow lick? No. <laughs> Sorry, I uh, yeah. I what I don't I'm, really know what, what we're talking about. What anymore. I'm saying, what I'm saying. Okay, let's so let's just say bend, this very when, you, when the river bends. Yeah. Eventually, the river will just actually cut that corner. You, and then the bit think, that remains is the oxbow. No, lake. you're thinking of the. Are you not thinking of is that the sea stack? I think it's no, a, that's the Oxbow Lake. No, it's a, it's, it's a V-shaped place here. <laughs> if all this money flows into the Premier League and the Premier League allows it all to flow straight through to the clubs, all that will happen is that the clubs will spend the money on what they always spend it on, which is players. And Essentially, we all wish we'd become football agents, if that happens. Yeah. Maybe it's not too late to become football agents now. right? Think carefully about becoming a football agent. It could be a winning, a winning strategy. Um, the players will get more. Now, for, for instance, speculative excess. That's what happens when there's too much money sloshing around in a, in a system. You get uh, ridiculous sums being paid for poor players. Just stupid money. Play, clubs paying stupid money for players, signing stupid contracts with players. That's what will happen. You get a massive inf- underlying inf- inflation, cost inflation in the game. Fine, I suppose, as long as the money keeps coming into the game. Problematic if, if the satellite companies find they can't keep the growth tipping along at the same uh, kind of pace. What the Premier League needs to do is actually look at the sport as a whole. It needs to safeguard the future of the sport. It should be using some of that money to ensure that in 20 years, football is still as a biggest sport in the UK as it is now. All right, we're going to come back to that with Nick Harris. Just uh, very quickly, have you got anything else you want to mention no. from last night's football? We'll leave that there for the time being. Loads more to chat about. That's the end of Kennedy's Report on Sport. Hair dryers is a metaphor for the current of hot air generated by various blasts of temper. The hair dryer with which uh, Alex Ferguson was famously associated. He threw a hair dryer, I think, at David Beckham. Oh, no, he threw a hair dryer at David Beckham. Uh, in the, is that right? No, 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 no. no. 
start the rest of the chat by speaking to John Bruin. He's the end's John Bruin about uh, Louis van Gaal this week. A good result, if not a great performance by Man United last night. But we're more interested, John, on his reworking of Rafael Benitez's rant from all those years ago, complete with the sheet of paper. Uh, the reaction overall was quite negative to this. But do you think in a lot of ways he was within his rights to stick up for himself? Yes, yeah, I think so. Um, I think he perhaps, he perhaps went a little off the handle. I, d- I don't think... I think he's overreacted in the first place um, because it, he's fallen into the Sam Allardyce trap. Now, I heard an interview... I heard actually an exchange between Sam Allardyce and Phil Brown on the radio last night where they were giggling between themselves. And he's, he's fallen for something of a wind-up. But I was actually there when Allardyce made his comment... It was pretty throwaway stuff. Sorry, John, think, were, were they giggling about this specific topic? Yeah. Oh, yeah. All right, Phil, okay. Phil, Phil Brown said, you know, oh, how many how many long balls did you play? And he said, well, not as many as you know, heard about, you know, all this time. <laughs> himself and, and Ronald Koeman were having a bit of a giggle on the sideline as well. I don't know if you saw that, John. Uh, yes, I did see that, yeah. So it seems as though Sam Allardyce has, has really been enjoying his, his triumph over Lou Van Hal. Yes, um, but, I mean, that's... You've got a thing, haven't you, where maybe Louis van Gaal might have been better suited to rise above that and to say, well, yeah, we got the draw out of the game, which we probably didn't deserve to, and we're much higher in the league than West Ham are, and we beat them at home anyway. Um, but going back to the original thing, it's one of those things that looks really awkward in the uh, confines of a normal press conference when someone produces a a headed note paper or a diagram to show the point that they mean. Um, it's just not the done thing in that environment. Why is, um, why is that, that John? Because I mean, this is, I think this is really interesting. Why why is it wrong to do that? I mean, in the specific case of Manchester United, the the parallel, the obvious parallel with Rafael Benitez a few years ago is immediately awkward. Okay, because you know we, yeah. we remember that it was it was quite an amusing time for Manchester United fans, and suddenly their managers doing the same thing. But we leave that aside. Why is it not the done thing? Because, I mean, for instance, at least Van Hal is showing a willingness to engage. Yeah, he's raising the level of discourse, you could argue. He's saying, hey, guys, you know, look, I saw there was a point made. Uh, I, I don't agree with it. Here's, um, here's my point. I've got some, some facts and figures to prove it and some pieces of paper where the argument is laid out. Well, what's wrong with that? I mean, in the sense of, well... Uh, at least he's he's engaging in in the argument as opposed to what what Alex Ferguson would have done, which is say you know you are all idiots away and write your shite. Well, <laughs> well that's, well, that's that's very true. And the thing is, the points that he was making weren't completely awry, were they? They were. Um, in fact, if you if you flip through the those that were at that press conference, you actually see that quite a lot of them sort of set, tended to think that what he wrote was what he said was was true. It's just that. <laughs> And there's something about the way that Van Gaal carries himself is so almost alien to, to, the, to the, the usual way that a, a press conference would go. Um, the discussion of tactics is one that is not a particularly uh, uh, mind topic. Now, there are reasons for that. The reasons mostly are that if you go to a Manchester United press conference, be that pre-match or post-match, I think you get seven minutes and uh, Karen Shotbolt, the lady who uh, whose grimace uh, made <laughs> made world headlines after the uh, that document was handed out, she sat there with it with her phone, timing what's happening. The thing is, a lot of the people that are asking those questions have to get 
news lines out of what's going on in the press conference. They have to get a back page lead. Um, and tactics to an English audience, possibly to an Irish audience, they're just not sexy. And most managers don't discuss them. Uh, I saw Rory Smith uh, tweet last night, and this is very true. I was there when he asked it. He asked uh, Roy Hodgson at a press conference about the um, about what formation he was playing. And I think Roy, this is an England one, said that it was four four two, four three three. They're all the same. Um, that's about as far as you get with these type of thing. Van Hal is prepared to discuss tactics. Actually, a lot of the time, the opening question, which will be the run of the mill, how did the game go for you, Louis? He will actually describe his tactics all the way through the game. It is a very different way of talking about the game than possibly many of us are used to. Rob Smythe wrote a piece for Eurosport and he's gotten a bit of stick from some of his fellow journalists for this, but he says it's clear that Van Hal would love to have a proper chat about tactics with someone, anyone in the media, and there are many with whom he could do so, except their editors would have no interest in publishing or showing such a conversation. England is crying out for the intelligent, detailed coverage of a publication like France Football. I'm just interested in that, that one particular point he makes within that, that editors would have no call uh, for this kind of analysis. Is that the sense that you get? If you, Are you ever admonished by ESPN or anybody for being a little too technical? Well, I don't think anyone's ever accused me of being too technical, but that's a separate issue. But um, I think, I, th- I think weirdly enough, I mean, I work, I work in a pretty much fully online world where there is room for the tactical stuff. I don't think there are too many newspapers that have too many tactical pieces. I mean, obviously, uh, Michael Cox is a piece for The Guardian. Uh, my friend Jack Pitt-Brook regularly does tactical pieces for The Independent. It, but it's not a, a particularly um, growth area. And there are those journalists in the in the press box that will laugh at the idea of the of inverting the pyramid or the false nine and stuff like that, or Brendan Rodgers talking about flipping the triangle, all that type of thing. The only thing I would say about Rob's statement is that, uh, that Louis van Gaal would like to talk tactics with anyone I'm not sure that's the case. He would like to dictate what he thinks tactics are, but a discussion of them with journalists is really not an option. From what I've been told by... Uh, well, I did a piece a couple of weeks ago about Van Gaal and spoke to a couple of people over in Holland, and they said the only people that he ever really feels comfortable or wants to discuss tactics or football technicalities with are actual players or actual coaches. And there are, there are of course, some coaches and players that he won't discuss them with. I imagine. I don't imagine he and Johan Cruyff particularly discuss tactics or technicalities. So, I the thing is, Van Gaal is, you know, as he sees it, the father of the modern game, and discussing it with journalists who haven't played the game or coached the, coached the game at, at at the level that he considers requisite to, to discuss the game with means that. I'm not sure that he does want to discuss tactics. He just wants to describe them and not be questioned of them. If, let's, let's notice, of course, that the, when he got annoyed about a tactical discussion, it was when another manager had said it, not a group of journalists. Yeah, I mean, and he started off by saying, uh, what is your opinion? Sort of challenging the uh, journalist to uh, say what he thought of what, what Sam Allardyce had said. You know, did, did you think Sam Allardyce was right? What is your opinion? What's your opinion? When I've, I'm pretty sure I've seen Louis van Gaal also tell journalists, your opinion does not matter to me in the slightest. You know, he, he, re- he literally hasn't, does not care at all uh, what these journalists, why would I care what you're saying when you clearly know nothing of what you're talking about? Yeah, exactly. I mean, the Louis van Gaal press conference is not a discussion. I don't think anything is a discussion with Louis van Gaal most of the time. 
it is Louis van Gaal pronouncing things, which may well be, if we, we take the things a bit broader than that, possibly the problem with his team at the moment. Mm. But, um, yeah, I think, I think the thing is, when van Gaal arrived, um, there was a, we expected that there would be fireworks at a certain point. One of the problems is that Manchester United have not played good football at all this season, let's be honest, over the, over the whole season. Um, but finally, we're seeing the Van Gaal that we were told about by foreign journalists and a, a few videos that appeared around the time of his arrival. Yeah. I mean, I, I still kind of find something slightly endearing about the Van Gaal sort of teacherly, uh, you know, demeanour handing out uh, with his handouts, you know, for, for the press back. There's something about that I kind of like. But do you get the sense, uh, John, over the last few weeks that... Um, uh, that the the mood of that of that press pack is turning a little bit against Van Gaal, having been I think almost uniformly impressed by him when he arrived, or, or at least everyone was really prepared to give him a good crack of the whip. That in the last few weeks there's been a little bit of a well, not quite sure this guy's sort of doing what uh, what we expected him to do. Uh, I saw a quite critical piece about him by uh, Henry Winter uh, a couple of weeks back. I think after the nil nil. Uh, Cambridge, where he was, he was sort of putting a few questions. But one of the things he was saying was, you know, you've got to stop talking down to people, Louis. You know, is there a sense that Van Gaal, having having made such a, a strong start, or you know, been given, been welcomed by everybody so much, is, is now beginning to run into a little bit of scepticism? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I was at the, the Cambridge game that, that Henry Winter was writing about, and that that actually was a, a bit of a watershed moment because if you recall that he came out and said that, oh, I've played in these games before and everything is against you, and including the referee, for which he faces an FA charge for which he uh, is going to fight, which, woe betide the FA committee, that has to, <laughs> has to argue him out of that one. But um, that, was, that, was just, that, that was a point where you know, his pronouncement started to begin to not make sense to people. Um, that schoolmasterly tone that you mentioned, I'm reminded, oddly, uh, do you remember Howard Wilkinson, he used to be Leeds United manager? Mm-hmm. Yeah. He had a similar sort of geography master's tone, you know, more leather elbow pads, that type of guy. Mm-hmm. And after a point, it becomes dull, it becomes boring. He's talking at you, he's describing his master plan, and there's no real discourse between you. Um the, the chap, from what I understand, that those that cover the Manchester set is the, the, there is a slight tide turning, and the problem is for Van Hal is that the performances aren't covering up the fact that when he talks, people can pick holes in what he's saying. Yeah, that's fair enough. Listen, John, we'll leave it there. Great stuff as always. Thanks, Emil. Cheers, lads. That article I mentioned, Ken uh, Rob Smythe, you had sent that on to me. Uh, it was. I, th- I thought it was quite interesting, the the points he was making. We outlined the, probably the most pertinent point there. But that, the overall, um, and I think I think John did agree with the overall theme, that there's not a the tactical analysis in English football isn't probably at the same level as elsewhere. But like I said, some journalists were a little bit, uh, weren't too happy with Rob Smythe. Uh, felt that maybe this no. guy's not at enough of these press conferences to make these kind of judgments. Well, yeah, there was a couple of... Um there was a couple of uh, journalists who you could see on Twitter had had read this piece uh, and were were not impressed. For instance, uh, there was Ian Ladyman uh, at the Daily Mail who was saying essentially, you know, I'd be interested to know if 
Uh, Rob's ever been with us at the Fergie Moyes Louis van Gaal press conference. He's written that article blind to make such assumptions without calling any of us as disappointing. It's never great to see one journalist slagging off another in print, especially in such broad terms. Um, <clears throat> he says, I don't know who he is. Uh, you've got Neil Custis at the Sun. What a load of pompous rubbish. Who the hell does he think he is? Um, all the, all opinions are valid, particularly the fans. The problem with this is he's slagging his own profession. I've never heard of this bloke or seen him at a game. So you've got two experienced journalists and you know guys who would be regularly covering Manchester United and have been for many years. Um, obviously, feathers ruffled a little bit by that. And maybe, maybe Rob Smythe does go a little too far uh, when he, you know... <laughs> suggests essentially what's the last line of that piece he basically says um, he kind of suggests that it's a, it's a hopeless situation it'd be as well, he'd be as, did, that he'd be as well off discussing Kierkegaard uh, or something like that was the last line of with the, zombies yeah he'd have more joy trying to explain Kierkegaard to a zombie yeah so so, so maybe that that's <laughs> a bit insulting uh, a bit insulting you need your kid or punchline at the end I'm sure Ken. yeah but look you know, I think there's a bit of a double standard here. Number one, if you're covering Man United for 10, 15 years, how have you not heard of Rob Smythe? He's been writing some of the best stuff about Man United for at least 10 of those years. Don't, don't claim ignorance as a badge of pride. You know what I mean? You should know, frankly. It's embarrassing, in my opinion, not to, not to be aware. I mean, if your job is to cover Manchester United, you'd expect you'd, you'd be well up on you know, people Who's who are covering Manchester, Manchester United. United you know? Oh, yeah, but that's the classic, you know, Lance Armstrong. I'm sorry, what's your name again? It's Paul. It's Paul Kimmage. Yeah, I know full well. It's just that idea of if if you can affect a certain sort of uh, nonchalance. To that us. that might be. I mean, maybe that's it. But you know, on the, on the one hand, it's bad to have journalists slagging journalists. If that if that's then what they're doing, they seem to be there seems to be a double standard. All right, got to move on because Nick Harris from SportingIntelligence.com is ready to talk about the Premier League rights deal at more than a bill, five billion uh, pounds sterling. I should say, Nick. Most of this is coming from Sky. The big question. We've been trying to answer a little bit ourselves here is why have they decided, why have Sky in particular decided to shell out so much money? I think the, the, one of the most interesting outcomes of this whole process is despite Sky saying over many, many years that they're diversifying their products, that they're no longer reliant wholly on Premier League football, that they've got a great portfolio of top-class golf, motor racing, um, tennis and other sports, the bottom line is this auction showed, above all, how utterly Sky are reliant on Premier League football for their core business. And frankly, the fact that they've spent more than four billion quid, which is almost double, certainly two billion more than they spent in the last three-year round, to make sure they held on to the majority of the football, just shows how utterly convinced they must be that their business is so reliant on Premier League football. I mean, I slightly hesitate to call it you know, a, a bid made in fear. But essentially, there's, there's not really any other rational explanation for it. They must have been terrified at the prospect of losing the majority of the football, which would have given them a one massive unknown of what happens to our business if we don't have the majority of the Premier League football. Yeah, which is amazing in some ways, Nick, because they come into it in the, you know, around 1992 and they shell out what would have then been massive money for this product. The idea, I guess, of most businesses, certainly of the size of Sky Sports, is that you diversify, as they've done, into all these other, all these other sports, all these other areas, sponsorship of, of, of the cycling team, all these kind of things. And yet, 20 years on from, from when they first came into the market, it seems like the, the Premier League football is more important now than it was then. Yeah, and, and, and it's sort of ironic that, that they've played such a very pivotal and important role in making it. So they've, 
you know, have to say clearly and up front that Sky Sports are absolutely brilliant at what they do. They are still, by some margin, the market leaders in terms of production values and coverage and extent and presenting talent and the rest of it. They are, you know, they're brilliant at what they do and they've done a brilliant job in building, you know, over 20, 23 years this business. But I guess only Sky can know what their own projections showed them about what would happen if they lost that football. And I can only assume that it was a bleak picture because what other logic would make you bid so much more than last time? Yeah. I mean, the only other logic really is that you, you think there's massive growth potential there that, you know, that you might make a, that these rights are actually worth more than the market thinks there. Do you, is there any chance yeah, that that might be the situation? We talk about growth potential, but I think in terms of how much can Sky uh, here, Sky in in their British businesses, and this is what we're talking about, they talk about the UK rights, the UK live rights. How much growth is there in this, you know, in Britain for, for them to sell Sky Sports subscriptions? There's probably not that much growth. And, you know, a lot of people who've already got pay TV and pay for pay TV sport are probably... I would have said the majority of people who are going to have it have already got that. There will be incrementally more, but however many, I think it's they've got something like 11 million. Sky Television have got something like 11 million subscribers, of which around 7 million are Sky Sports customers, i.e. football customers. So that's 7 million homes. You know, that that's probably getting a long way towards what it possibly can be. So I don't necessarily think there's massive growth in terms of the number of subscriptions they can sell. What, what of course, there is still growth for is there's, or, or areas for is there's margins into which these different major providers, BT, Sky, Virgin, can take customers off each other to offer them um, what's known as triple play or quad play packages. That means selling one, one service provider, providing a home with their pay TV, their telephone, their internet, and increasingly their mobile. So triple play is, is internet, TV services, and um, telephone and, and quad player is adding mobile. And that's what this is about. This is about long-term control and dominance uh, and securitizing business in in a triple play and quad play market, which is getting a long way from uh, who, who's best at showing us when we're really scoring a hatchet on a Saturday afternoon. But that is what, you know, th- these massive money is a function of. It's actually a function of the medium to long-term control of the triple and quad play market in in you know, in the UK, and that's, you know, they're not very sexy, but that's what it's all about. So BT entered this market um, in this current, you know, in the 2013-16 round, sensationally entered the market, pushing the prices up 70%, you know, when they entered the market, um, precisely for that, to secure their own, basically, as a long-term strategy to hold on to their own broadband customers, which is all good news for the Premier League, but it's, it's, it's a lot more complex than who's going to buy some rights you know, just some football matches. It's all good news from the Premier League and the point of view of, you know, they're, they're going to be making plenty of money. Um, yeah. You know, no one, no one can argue with that. Is, are they maybe making a little bit too much money? Is this money a bit too much for the Premier League to handle? I mean, looking at the the, the kind of sums that are coming in, uh, I mean, you could see the smirk on the face of uh, Richard Scudamore. Um, yeah. I suppose increasing the, these these sums are—that's basically what he's he's paid to do, and he's he's done it quite well. He, you can see yeah. why he's so pleased with himself. But at the moment, five percent of the money, uh, the TV rights money, is is kind of uh, redistributed outside the Premier League. Yeah, there's a very strong case, Nick Shirley, that they need to increase the the share of that because, um, I mean. <laughs> 
to give the Premier League clubs this much money is only going to mean that the next Afonso Alves will cost fifty million pounds and will be on you know a four hundred grand a week contract. Uh, surely the Premier League, if it's going to be long term greedy as opposed to just short term greedy, has to has to look at trying uh, to invest in in the game itself. In the so sport. your argument here, Ken, is not the uh, argument that it's the right thing to do, which is what a lot of people have been saying over the last 24 hours, to redistribute more money to the grassroots. It's actually... The uh, selfish it, thing it, to the do. The selfish thing to do is for the Premier League to trickle more money down. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think so, Nick. I don't know what you, what you make of that. Yeah, I think, I think it, uh, it's got to the point now where it's a complete no-brainer that the Premier League should be doing a number of different initiatives, including giving away more money to grassroots and to the lower levels, but also subsidising ticket prices, uh, particularly the Football Sports of Federation's 20s Plenty initiative, which would sort of um, put a ceiling of £20 on away, on away supporters, um, which has been estimated that it would cost the Premier League selectively about £20 million a season, which in the grand scheme of things now is not very much at all to make sure that no away supporter plays, pays more than 20 quid. And I absolutely agree that the Premier League has got a lot of, a lot of room now to give away more money to, to lower levels. I mean, uh, absolutely. So in principle, I think it's a no-brainer that they should be doing this. And um, 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 Owen Gibson in The Guardian, if you just go on and Google Owen, and, and he came up with five suggestions yesterday that are very interesting and very thoughtful and very practical piece in in, uh, in The Guardian, uh, which you can find on, anyone can find online. Five ways that the Premier League can spend their five billion, which was just very simple, but practical ways that people redistributing the way that the Premier League can up their, their spending. So absolutely... I think there are some simple and easy ways that they should, in principle, give away more money. Of course, it's much more complex than that in practical terms. Let's take the ticket pricing, for example. Let's say, just for the sake of argument, that the Premier League decided that the Premier League clubs decided not just to say cut away tickets to a maximum of £20, but they decided that no football ticket was going to cost more than £20. Um, What happens? If, if Manchester United decide that no ticket in their ground is going to cost more than £20, what you have then is you have a tout's paradise. Now, it's, you know, it's not, it's not an easy debate to have this because, it, on the one hand, of course, it's ludicrous that some football supporters should be paying £65 for away tickets as they do at Arsenal, Manchester City and other grounds. On the other hand, the practical difficulties of saying, well, when we're going to put a ceiling on a ticket price where you've actually got, you know, a commercial market forces at work is if you make ticket prices cheaper, you will just you, you, you will just create a house paradise where suddenly the, the the sort of market value of the, the the ticket prices will find their own market, and that will be on the secondary markets. And then this whole question is about policing. That's one example of how complex you know these things become. The redistribution thing. Well, of course, the Premier League could say, okay, well we're going to give away not five percent or six percent, but twenty percent or thirty percent. Where do they give that money to? Should they give that to championship clubs because they're sort of the next tier down? And then the question is, well, what should the championship clubs who will newly be enriched do? Should they? How much of their money should they give to League One and League Two? How much should the League Two clubs who might be getting, say, a million pounds a year then give to the clubs in the conference to whom a million pounds a year is untold wealth? What should the clubs in the conference be giving to park football? So that's that sort of... You know, it's, I think there's absolutely lots of things that they could and should and hopefully will do in terms of giving away more of their wealth. But there's also there's, there's also an argument about you know how, how much of this are we sort of pinning on the Premier League because it's you know a big because it gets lots of attention and because it's sort of easy target in the way that say we wouldn't 
demand the same of other much, much, much bigger industries, industries that, you know, whether that's supermarket chains or oil producers or banks who make, you, you know, tens of billions or hundreds of billions in revenue each year. Are we making the same demands on them to pay the living wage and to say that their executives are greedy and whatever? Or, or is the Premier League often picked out as being, a, you know, an institution through which we think, you know, should fix all the ills of society? What about radio stations? What about profit-making radio, national radio stations, for example? Should they be giving their profits to local radio stations that are closing down that aren't, aren't working? National newspapers who make money, should we demand that they plough their cash into local newspapers, which are sort of the bastions of local democracy and very, very important, because, you know, because they're making more money and they're a success, should they give the money? I think there's a lot of... A lot of criticism of the Premier League. Football is um, a bit different though, Nick, isn't it? it it's always, it, it certainly feels a little bit different. I think people connect to their football clubs and their footballers in a different way to how, how, how they would connect with the newspapers that they read or with the radio stations well, that they I listen to. I don't know, actually, with newspapers. I think, you know, I think there's obviously a strong connection between people and the newspapers they read and, and their local newspapers. Of course, of course, football, football, football's the national sport. Football's the big sport. Of course, of course, it is different, and that's what I'm saying. It, it does have a responsibility. It has a responsibility to communities. It has a responsibility to its fans. It has, you know, wider responsibilities. But in, in some ways, the Premier League has become, you know, it is a victim of its own success because uh, as these TV deals have got bigger and the money has got bigger, you know, I've spoken a number of times to the people who were involved in the founding of the Premier League, and none of them envisaged that it would become this monster that it has become in terms of, of being a success. You know, Scudamore himself is sort of success, shaking his head at how much money these deals make. But, you know, that's a product of the marketplace. What they've done, they, Sky, the competition, the broadcasters, all the people, all of us, we're, talking, we're having this conversation now. You know, we're not sitting here talking about, you know, how triathlon has grown its fan base or, or, or the lure of gymnastics or whatever. We're talking about Premier League football because, you know, listeners want to hear about it because they're interested in it, because it's popular. You know, it, it's, it's just, of course, I absolutely agree. I think it's a complete no-brainer that the club should be doing something quite significant about ticket prices. I think there's absolutely room for them to give give away a lot more of their money. But when it actually gets down to the fine detail of how, you know, how that's given away and where it goes and, and whether it's the best use of the money, you know, there's a lot of detailed, you know, a lot of detail there that's still to be thrashed out. All right, Nick Harris, Sporting Intelligence. Great stuff. Thanks a million. Okay, cheers. Uh, have you got any answers to to that comparison again any comments on that comparison made by Nick Harris of of Sky Sports or sorry of uh, the Premier League I should say to newspapers to radio stations to other industries who if they have very profitable companies don't necessarily think they have to funnel money back to the grassroots yeah of their um, own companies if that word exists outside of sport yeah well i mean in, in not many of them are in the position the Premier League is in but I, my point is about the Premier League's the, the Premier League's future. The Premier League seems to think that it's divorced from reality, that it exists, that it, it seems to almost think, well, look, these TV companies are paying us all this money and it's, you know, our job now is just to take that money. You know? Um, they don't seem to realise that they're, um, that they are, they, they're part of a country which, this is all, this is all coming from the UK. All this money is coming from the UK, right? From people who are interested in football in the UK. 
the Premier League's concern should be with maintaining its customer base. Right, I'm, I'm going to put this in the kind of uh, in the kind of horrible business language that that the Premier League kind of thinks in. They should be. I'm not going to talk about you know, <laughs> in trying to use any Hold kind time, of emotional language about grassroots. Yeah. You know, this is this is the customer base, mm-hmm. right? Is the Premier League just all about stuffing like stuffing its face at the trough in the short term, or is it about ensuring that the trough is kept full forever? You know, is that should that not really be what it's concerned with? I mean, it's obvious that this is, you know, you can you can forget about English players really ever playing in the Premier League. <laughs> just there's no way. I mean, the if you've got a situation where you know West Ham are are like picking Real Madrid squad clean, right? Um, then you've got a situation where it's very very the, the, suddenly the the level of the Premier League is high enough that it's very difficult for any young English player to get through. Uh, when I say the level, I don't necessarily mean the level of player. I mean the level of money that's been spent on the average player is so high that there's very little chance of a, of a youth team player actually getting in ahead of them. That's, that's obviously going to be a problem for... That's obviously going to be a problem for the English national team. But in a larger sense, the actual future of the game... I mean, the, the, these people are used to thinking in a world in which it's kind of automatic for a lot of people to be football fans because they all played it when they were kids. That's not actually the case anymore. You know, it used to be the case that you could just play football wherever. You know, if you lived in a city, in one of the cities in England, you could just go out outside your house and play football on the road. You can't do that anymore. Yeah, but does there need to be a connection anymore? Of course there needs to be between, a connection. Between actually playing. Uh, the, the, those kids you're saying who aren't necessarily playing football anymore and there might not be space for them to play are still watching the Premier League. They'll still want to spend money on the Premier League as they, Will they? they get it of an age. I, th- I think well, that's the, a guess. Uh, the NFL exists uh, like, a cl- like a cloud city in America in that it's a sport that no adult plays other than the people that that uh, are paid millions to play it. There's not like the a, there's already a Sunday morning. There's, there's, uh, there is no Sunday league NFL. Culture. There is no uh, community based team in the NFL. Like if if, if is, the Carolina is, Panthers aren't aren't selling tickets in Carolina, they'll go to Los Angeles or the St. Louis Rams. They're going to move out of St. Louis and they're going to move to they're going to play their games in LA. Like and the NFL model, you know, m- maybe that's a bubble too, but. If you're the Premier League, no, and the you're NFL, looking, the NFL model isn't a bubble. Sorry, sorry, go on. Yeah, no, if and, and obviously there's promotion, relegation, all the rest of that. But if, if you're the if you're the Premier League, and you're looking at okay, well, what's the going rate around the world? And obviously the NFL is still more, it, it's still uh, uh, even more expensive, you know, it, to, per season to buy the rights to show the NFL than uh, the Premier League. Taking into account, uh, as you were saying, the massive population difference between the US and the UK, but you know, if if you if you if you look at the NFL, you're the idea that the NFL would put like you know hundreds of millions of pounds of dollars back into what like high school football or something. I mean, the, the idea would be la- is laughable, you know, from the NFL's point of view, and so. If you're the Premier League, maybe that's the lead you're taking. Yeah, well, I don't know. I think, I think it's a slightly different thing. I mean, it doesn't seem to me as though grassroots uh, football in the United States has much of a problem with funding, actually. I mean, when I look at the fact Absolutely that not. high schools are playing in 60,000-seater stadiums or whatever, you know, it seems, it seems as though, actually, they've got quite a lot of... It's its own industry, yeah. essentially. And, yeah. and incidentally, the Premier League proportionally is getting but paid NFL- a lot more than the NFL. Yeah. Now, this is, this, is the, this, is the, this is the important thing to remember. As long as the money keeps flowing in in ever greater quantities, 
the, the Premier League will never have to deal with the consequences of its mistakes in terms of the way that it's run, as long as the money keeps flowing in in ever mm. greater quantities. That's a risky assumption, always a risky assumption. And they're, they're behaving as though it's not. And if they, this is too much money for them actually to switch. It's too, it's too much money when you compare it to uh, the other clubs, the, the, other, the other leagues in Europe. It's, Premier League clubs have, are so much wealthier now from TV than in Germany, France, Italy, Spain. It, it almost forces them to behave stupidly. Like it forces them to overpay for everything. They've just got so much more money. I mean, if they want to buy a player from any of these leagues, they're paying twice, three times the, the value. What, what, what the value would otherwise be. That's going to lumber them with a really, really high cost base. As long as the money keeps coming in in ever greater quantities, then they'll be fine. But your, so fine. your argument is that if, because uh, we, we do need to get things wrapped up pretty soon, but your argument is that if the Premier League don't, whatever grassroots is meant to mean, I don't know exactly what. Where what I'm talking about really is say, is say building, for instance, building pitches. They need, they, need, they, they need more people playing from a young age or else they won't have people willing to pay for TV in later years or whatever way it's, it's a, distributed It's a sport. But they, they, should be, they should be investing some of their income into the future of their business. In the same way that, say, Roman Abramovich was a really bad owner for that oil company, Sidneft. Because an oil company, for instance, is supposed to... It makes a certain amount of money every year. A lot of that is going to be profit. It's going to reinvest some of the money. Say you're, you're pulling all this oil up out of, the, out of the ground in Siberia. It gets cold there. Your machinery starts to break down. Yeah, bits of it have to be replaced. You want to get different sort of areas of oil. Right? You reinvest. You reinvest some of the money into the business in order to ensure that next year your business can still function. Maybe, maybe make even more. Abramovich just took all the money and put it into his bank account. He just took a 100% you know, dividend. Oh, we've got a certain amount of profit. Well, I'll have that. Well, the Premier League clearly see their business as the Premier League. That's, but that's, the Premier League are doing the same thing. They're saying, let's just take all the money now, pay ourselves now. Everybody's going to get rich now. As to what's going to happen in three or four years, well, hopefully Sky will still be uh, paying over the top. And if they're not, then someone else will have come along. And people will just automatically keep paying for this stuff anyway. And it's not like football is ever going to go out of fashion because, hey, wait a minute, no one's actually played this. You know, it's not as though everybody in the country has these childhood memories of playing the game, which keeps them coming back to it again and again throughout their adult lives. You know, they're sort of assuming all that's going to be okay without investing in it. And I think that's a stupid mistake. Just a reminder about the Irish Times second captain sports night with Rabo Direct Sugar Club in Dublin on Monday week. That's February 23rd, uh, Monday, Feb 23rd at uh, 7pm. If you want tickets, if you want to be there, just apply for them. irishtimes.com forward slash second captains. We have another show coming out later today, which will feature a little bit of chat about Tiger Woods, who's taken a break from the game again. And we're also going to be looking ahead to Ireland, France, with the Ireland team news in, in just a little while as I speak. You can follow us on Twitter at Second Captains, email secondcaptains at irishtimes.com. I started the show by naming a few of the great Scottish managers in the Premier League, so I might as well finish by just naming a few more because we got through most of them, I think, earlier on, Ken. But Paul Lambert is the last of this dying breed, so it's only f- uh, fair, I think, to pay our respects to Malky Mackay, <laughs> to oh, Billy, yeah. Billy McEwen of Derby County uh, in the early 2000s. Yeah. And who can forget Jimmy Gabriel? I have forgotten Jimmy Gabriel. Uh, Everton manager at some point in the around 1994. So to all the jocks, we'll miss we'll miss you. And thanks for the memories. There may be more of you in the future managing in the Premier League. Uh, let's hope so. Thanks, Ken. Thank you, Aaron. Thanks, Kieran. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks, Ken. Thank you, Kieran. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you soon. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.